Well, good morning. You know, as uh, VBS was going on here with hundreds of kids in, in this community and people serving that way, we had a team of FBCers doing another VBS thousands of miles away on the subcontinent of India. And they were um, up in the northern reaches of India. Still are, they'll be home Wednesday. About a dozen of our folks and kids, young people, uh, up in a region called Missouri. It's a, it's a, a, a mountainous region. They have to hike back to these villages. And the reports uh, that God is just doing some really, really awesome things uh, in their lives, but also in the lives of the villagers. So some really, really fun things um, about that. We have uh, a couple of our pastors uh, this weekend are on a little island uh, off the coast of Maine, Vinyl Haven. It's a, a place where about 1,500 people live year-round. It swells more in the summer. But John Morrison and Mike Lukens are there. Uh, we're developing a relationship a little bit with that uh, church. It's, there's a church on that island that is ministering to the people. And there's some very um, uh, crucial needs uh, uh, that have ministry opportunities. So John and Mike are there. They'll be home tomorrow. In fact, uh, later this summer, another team of youth will be going to that same place to do a VBS there. Uh, so a lot's happening. Jim Poole, one of our missions pastors and his family are down in Ecuador, left uh, I think yesterday or today. So uh, a lot of things happening and transpiring in our body as people leave and move and, and vacation and hurt as well. We had a, a funeral here yesterday for a dear gal uh, who went home to be with the Lord and uh, her husband, Buzz, Bank camper T.D. went home to be the Lord after a valiant battle, um, but uh, Buzz wanted to express his thanks to this body for the just abundance of love that has been shown uh, to that family. You know, every family probably has a legendary hero of sorts. You know, someone in the family tree who has done some great exploits or supposedly great exploits that uh, become, you know, legendary. I have uh, a cousin who's about 10 years older than I am. He fought in Vietnam. And his nickname was Sergeant Rock because of his combat prowess. And I've never heard him talk about it. Um, other family members have. And it is the stuff that legends are made of. War heroes, legends, men who are larger than life that you want to emulate. Now, for me, when I was a kid growing up, it was Roy Rogers or um, mild-mannered Clark Kent, who was Superman. Uh, we, we get enamored with heroes and legends from um, Batman and, and Spider-Man to Robin Hood and King Arthur George Patton to Spartacus of ancient Rome. Um, heroes is part of the, the fabric of a culture. Now, one of the earliest legendary heroes that we know of, that the scriptures teach about, is a man who is recorded in Genesis chapter 10, and his name is Nimrod of Shinar. Sounds like a a numbskull with a black eye. But make no mistake, 
This man was one of the greatest legendary heroes in the ancient world. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 10 as we just depart a little bit from our study of the book of Isaiah. And again, we'll the next couple of weeks as we do the walkthrough as well. This uh, chapter of Genesis chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations because in verse 1 it says, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of uh, Noah. The sons were born to them after the flood. And then there's this list of those families after the great flood. And it, it reads like a typical kind of genealogical table. So-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, kind of a typical, until you come to verse 8, and then all of a sudden, there are five verses devoted to Nimrod of Shinar, which tells you this guy stood out. This guy stood out. Let's read, starting in verse 8. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went forth into Assyria, and he built Nineveh, and Rehoboth-ur, and Kalah and resin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. There was something unique about Nimrod. There was something legendary about Nimrod. A couple things we find out about this passage is that Nimrod was, first of all, he's called the mighty one on earth. A mighty one on earth. Hebrew word is the word gebor, and we heard about that word a number of weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 7, talking about Jesus who was the, or is the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, the El Gabor. Nimrod was a Gabor. He was a mighty one on earth, strong, mighty. It's a word that could be translated hero. In fact, it could be translated possibly as the word tyrant. And then it says that he was a mighty hunter, and he distinguished himself as a, as a mighty hunter before the Lord. And again, that word Gabor is used as an adjective. He's a mighty hunter. Uh, over in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 30, it uses that, that title of a lion. Proverbs 30, 30 says, the lion which is mighty among beasts does not retreat before any. Here's Nimrod. He's the mighty hunter before the Lord. And it says before the Lord in the sense that, well, that could mean that God takes note of it. He distinguishes himself with such um, power and, and might. God takes notice of him. Or it could have the connotation that he was doing this before the face of God in the sense of a defiance. And then it says, therefore it is said of him, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. In other words, he had a reputation. Uh, his, his, um, uh, the, the stories about Nimrod must have, been, uh, must have gone throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. 
He had a reputation. It was said, oh, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter. We also know that he was an empire builder. The beginning of his kingdom, it says, the beginning of his kingdom. He began his kingdom, and it was called Babel. And then Erech and Akkad and Kelna and the land of Shinar. And then he, he, he went over to the area of Assyria, and he built more cities. Nimrod was the first to collectivize his power as an as a, as a empire builder. He built these cities. You see, Nimrod was a, could we say this? Nimrod was a man's man. A man's man. A mighty one on earth. A mighty hunter even before the Lord. He was an empire builder. He just didn't build one city. He built city after city after city. He was legendary. But now let me, let me add some more pieces to this puzzle, give you a fuller understanding. Because who really was Nimrod? Well, to answer that question, I want us to look at three key passages earlier in Genesis. The first one is in Genesis 4. Back in Genesis 4, this is the account of Cain and Abel, and Cain killed his brother Abel. And in verse 11 of chapter 4, it says, now, this is God speaking to Cain, and he says, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from the hand. And what is that curse? Verse 12, when you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. But he says, you shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. God says, you've killed your brother, and I'm going to curse you, and here's the curse. You will never find rest. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Well, true to his sinful, murderous, rebellious nature, what did Cain do? Look at verse 16. It says, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You know what Cain's saying? <laughs> you think you're going to curse me, God? You're crazy. Wanderer, a vagrant on the earth? Uh-uh. And he goes east out of Eden, and he's settled in the land of Nod. No wandering for this rebel. Verse 17 said Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived. She gave birth to Enoch, and, they built, and he built a city. And he called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Cain is a, a city builder. In defiance against God, he built a city. Pride, that hubris, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He settled in Nod. He stuck his fist in the face of God and he built a city. The second passage is a couple chapters later in chapter 6. So over to chapter 6. This is just before the flood, the great flood takes place. And in verse 4, we read that the Nephilim were on earth in those days and afterwards also, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now that's the word Gabor, what was used of Nimrod. And, and whatever 
the interpretation, and I'm not going to get in the weeds on that, whatever the interpretation of the Nephilim and all that stuff, we can at least say this, that there was great wickedness on the earth because verse 5 says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Whatever those verses mean, it is at least saying the mighty men were men of wickedness. A third passage, a few chapters later in chapter 9. This is after the great flood. Chapter 9, verse 20. It says that Noah planted as a farmer, planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers about it. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew that his youngest son, Ham, had done what he'd done to him. And so he said, verse 25, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Cursed be Canaan. Now, why Canaan? I mean, Ham was the one who came. Canaan was Ham's son. And just an aside, this is a theology book, the book of Genesis. Moses is writing this as a theology. He's writing it to people who are about to enter as God's chosen people into the land of Canaan to conquer it, the promised land. Moses just gave theological permission. Canaan. Put that aside. The line of Ham, the son of Noah, was cursed. The line and lineage of Ham would be servants to the other two family trees. You will be servants, it says, to the brothers. Now let's apply this to Nimrod. First of all, as I mentioned in chapter 10, Nimrod is called a mighty one on earth. And it harkens back to chapter 6, to just prior to the flood, to these mighty ones, these men of renown, these legendary ones that were full of wickedness. God saw the wickedness of the earth. Nimrod, I think, is connected He's linked to those mighty ones of chapter 6. In other words, there are evil connotations tied to Nimrod when he's called a mighty one on earth. Second of all, Nimrod, as you, if you read here in the context, is a grandson of Ham, of cursed Ham. Ham and his family were to be servants to the other families. What does Nimrod do? Me? <laughs> a servant? Not this guy. He's an empire builder. In fact, commentators uh, suggest that this whole idea about being a mighty hunter could imply he was a conqueror. 
He was a plunderer. He was a hunter of men. He conquered others. He did whatever it took, and he built an empire. Serve not on your life. His goal of life was to have others serve him. Thirdly, Nimrod is very significantly associated with Cain. Cain built cities in defiance against God. Cain went east and with his fist in the face of God, settled and built. So too Nimrod, the master builder of cities. He's tied to Cain. Nimrod was related by blood to the cursed Ham, but he was related in spirit to the cursed Cain. You put all the the pieces of the puzzle together, I think the conclusion that you draw is that Nimrod, he was not a very nice person. He was a tyrant, a defiant rebel against God, a hunter of men, a plunderer. In his pride and his arrogance, he thought of himself and nothing would get in his way. One more thing. Nimrod's empire, as we read, was focused in two particular areas. Nimrod built his empire in the land of Shinar. That's Babylon. And then it says he went and built, continued to build in the land of Assyria. Do you see the connection with the book of Isaiah? The two nations that God used to bring down his people because of their sin. Israel to the north, defeated and destroyed by Assyria. Judah to the south, defeated and taken off into captivity by Babylon. Assyria and Babylon. Now, you keep moving into chapter 11 of the story, and we read in chapter 11, verse 1, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about... As they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. What does that tell you? Cain-like. Cain, in rebellion against God, went east and settled in the land of Nod. Nimrod and his family, his progeny, they moved east and they settled in the land of Shinar. He becomes a legendary hero there as verse 3 continues. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. You know what they're saying? Nimrod and his families, we are not going to succumb to God. We're going to build a name for ourselves. We're going to be distinguished among all. We're going to build a tower that reaches into the heaven. And in this satanic-like way, they said, we are going to be like God. It's Nimrod-like. 
You know, Babylon throughout Scripture is recognized as the antithesis of God's holy city, Jerusalem, and God's kingdom. Babylon's not mentioned, one other time in the book of Joshua, Babylon's not mentioned in the rest of the Scripture until you get to the book of Isaiah. Babylon, with its beginning in Nimrod, stands for everything that is godless and opposed to the true God. Babylon is evil. Its system was self-focused, humanistic worship. And ultimately, the Bible tells us, this Babylon will be destroyed, but not until Jesus Christ comes back. The very last book in the Bible tells us of the undoing of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. But as you keep moving through Genesis, after this stench of arrogance and pride and and mightiness and and humanistic man-building, empire-building of Nimrod, the very next chapter begins, chapter 12, verse 1, with this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Oh, how unlike Nimrod and the people of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. We're introduced now to this second person, Abram, Abraham. And God tells him, I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, those, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then look at verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. <laughs> so Abraham went forth. Abraham was a, was a worshiper of the moon god. I mean, this guy was a pagan in the land of, of the Chaldeans over there in that, that Shinar region. He was from the city of Ur, and yet God showed up in his life. Abraham, leave, and I'll show you a land that I will give to you, and I'll make a great nation out of you. So Abraham left. You go to verse 6. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And so he built an altar there. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded. He kept moving. He's the wanderer. He's the vagrant. He kept moving, proceeded there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar, another altar to the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham was a worshiper of God. And he cried out to God and he called upon the name of the Lord. Fulfill your promises, Lord. Show me, bless me, fulfill your promises. He called upon the name of the Lord in faith. What a contrast with Nimrod. Now, turn with me to the New Testament book of Hebrews because I want the writer of Hebrews to kind of illuminate us a little bit more about Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11. We looked at this last week a little bit in its 
definition of, uh, of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things hoped for, the conviction, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Faith is, is seeing what God has said and believing it so strongly, so, so assuredly, so confidently. It takes what is yet in the future and it brings it right down into the present now. Well, look at starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, verse 9, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. And by the way, if you've got an NIV translation, Abraham is the object of verse 11, which is incorrect. So sorry about that with your NIVs, but it's Sarah. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore, there was born even of one man, and he is good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. In stark contrast to Nimrod is Abraham, the man of faith, the real hero. Let me share with you four aspects of Abraham's faith from this passage. First of all, Abraham's faith was an obedient faith. An obedient faith. The first part of verse 8 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. That little phrase, when he was called, is a, is a present tense participle, meaning as God was calling him, it, you can almost say, while God, in the process of God calling him, boom, Abraham obeyed. The writer of the book of Hebrews wants us to understand the immediacy the obedience of his faith. It's like God telling him, go to the land that I'm going to show you, and God is talking. And looks down at Abraham, he's got his bags packed already. The immediacy of his faith. While being called, he obeyed. What was it about this guy that just had that? I mean, he's been worshiping the moon god in the land of the Chaldeans for Pete's sake. And now God talks to him and tells him to go. Off he goes. Even almost while the command is being given. Second of all, his faith was a risk-taking faith. The last part of verse 8, it says, and he went out. But then it says, not knowing where he was going. <laughs> now that's crazy. Uh, packing his bags, heading out of Ur, out of town. Where are you going, Abram? I don't know. I mean, you're leaving all this behind? Uh, yep. You have no idea where you're going? Nope. Now, this was not some pipe dream. This was not some craziness of this man. It was tied to the promise from the mouth of God. It was tied to the word of God who said, go and as you go, I'll show you the land. But he had no idea where he was going. Abram went out 
not knowing where he was going. His faith was risk-taking. Thirdly, his faith was a patient faith. Verse 9 reminds us that by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Now that's important. He lived in tents. So did his son. So did his grandson. In other words, there was like perpetual tent dwellers. Where was this land? When, when, when Stephen, the first martyr, is giving his defense before the Jewish Sanhedrin, before he's killed Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and he's giving this history of the, their people, the Jewish people, and in Acts chapter 7, verse 5, as he's talking about Abram, he says that God gave him no inheritance in the land, not even a foot of ground. You see, Abraham received a promise, but he never received the possession of it. In fact, th hey, this is a, a question for a, a Bible quiz with kids or each other someday. Abraham owned one one plot of ground, one piece of ground in his life. You know what it was? That's right, Sarah's tomb. That's it. A cave that he begged for from a guy named Ephraim, the, the Hittite. The cave at the, in the field of Machpelah. And that's all he had. He, he had a place to bury his wife for 62 years. Can you imagine this? God tells him, uproot, leave everything that you've known. Go to a land that I'm going to give you, and you'll be a, a great nation. And he doesn't even have a kid, let alone a foot of ground. And for 62 years, man, I would have probably bailed out after the first week. Can you imagine this? Okay, God, I'm here. A month goes by. A year goes by. A decade, another decade, another decade. Would the promise of God have long since been forgotten? Would we, would we, would we peer down into this, this land that had been promised to this tent dweller Abraham and his elderly wife and no kids living in a tent and say, now, there is a bitter man. There is a man who has never forgiven God. Not Abraham. You see, Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham lived his present life in light of the future truth. And it was so real, it was so palpable to him. He took that promise of God that was yet in the future, and decade after decade, he lived in the reality of the now. He was a faithful follower of Christ. In fact, it says in verse 10, for he was looking for the city whose foundation, whose architect and builder was God. He was looking for something that was yet to come, the promise of God of something eternal, of something that would later come, something that Isaiah the prophet would teach us about, the coming kingdom. Here's a fourth characteristic of Abraham's faith. 
it was an impactful faith. I mean, this was an infectious faith. Look at verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. Now, wait a minute. That's got to be incorrect, right? That's a mistake, which is why in some translations, they just focus off Sarah. It couldn't have been Sarah. It must be Abraham. Uh-uh. It was Sarah. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 18, where was the faith of Sarah? You remember the story? The angels come, Abraham, you're gonna, Sarah's going to have a, a baby and all that stuff. And yeah, but she's you know, 90 years old and all that stuff. And Sarah overhears it. And what does she do? She does a belly laugh. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Me? How can I have a baby? I mean, she was anything but filled with faith. And now yet we read here, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. Where did that come from? Very simply this. She happened to be married to the man who wrote the book on faith. You don't think living with this guy, Abraham, for all these years wouldn't have influenced her? That's exactly what Abraham did. She lived with the man of faith. He had a powerful influence on Sarah. In fact, Abraham, the man of faith, has had a powerful influence down through the centuries of time. His faith is legendary. The writer of the book of James, James, writes this, Abraham believed God. That was his characteristic way. It was accounted to him as righteousness. And this man of faith was called the friend of God. The friend of God. Because he just took God at his word. It's Father's Day. And ladies, I know you won't mind if I ignore you this morning and I want to just talk to the men. Dads, grandfathers, grandfathers, uncles, uh, men who may have had kids and families and men who may not have. But just to you men, let me ask you this morning, who are you most like? Nimrod or Abraham? Nimrod-like, that's that self-made man. He stops at nothing to achieve his goals. It's Nimrod-like. It's the one who, who, who's the controller. He's the one who, who's going to manipulate. He's going to step on whoever it takes so that he rises to the top. Nimrod-like. It's a man of, of pride, of arrogance. He always has to be right. You can't argue with him. Nimrod-like. He's a man who whether he purposefully wants to or chooses to, he hurts his family because he gets what he wants all the time. Nimrod life. It's a man who is self-focused, self-assertive, self-assured. It's Nimrod like. It's a man who, who lives for the accolades of the now and not for, the, for God's well done in eternity. Nimrod-like. And in the process, in the process of, of living his, his arrogant, prideful, insecure, empire-building life, he hurts everyone around him. 
On the other hand, there's Abraham. Abraham. Abraham like is the man who, for whatever reason, contrary to what the world would say, because the world would say, man, Nimrod, that's who you want to be like. But contrary to all of that, here's a man who just walks obediently and humbly with God. He just takes God at his word. He has a confidence in the promise of God. Abraham-like, it's a man who, who just lives obediently. When God says, do this, he does it. Abraham-like, it's a man who doesn't have his identity, his self-esteem, his sense of self-worth tied to what he's accomplished or what he's accomplishing. It's not tied to who he is or who he has become, but whose he is as a child of God. He, he sees himself so differently than what the world says you need to see yourself. It's an Abraham-like guy. It's a guy who exemplifies a life of, of infectious faith. I mean, this is a guy who, when the kids are little and maybe they're going through some financial strain and struggle in the home, instead of being a grouch, instead of, well, dad's going through some things, this is the guy who, who gathers the family around him and he says, family, we've got some rough days ahead. But then you can see the sparkle in his eye and he says, but God is great. And somehow, in some way, he's going to provide for us. And he grabs the hands of those kids and he goes before the throne of God and he prays. And I'll tell you what, dads, grandpas, uncles, those kids grow up knowing there's a God in heaven who can do anything because dad lived that life that way. His faith is infectious. It's Abraham-like. It's a man who goes against the grain of the ordinary to serve an extraordinary God with confidence and joy. It's Abraham-like, a man who has his eyes fixed on the future prize, and so he doesn't have to sweat trying to amass the earthly prizes. He's confident in who he is and whose he is. Abraham-like. And men, by the way, an Abraham-like man is not a perfect man because Abraham was not perfect. Read Genesis chapter 16 sometime. No, the guy had plenty of warts. He was not perfect. But he simply loved God and lived his life in faith, in confidence of God. Guys, if you're wife, if your family were to measure you on the, on the, on the scale of Nimrod-like or Abraham-like, where, where would we fall out on that scale? You see, man, your family, your family doesn't need an empire builder. Your family, your loved ones, they need, a, they need a faith builder. They need someone who knows their God and is so confident that they walk by faith and everyone around them is infected with it. Because in that man's eyes, there's no one greater 
and no one more powerful and no one more worthy to be worshipped and served than the great God of heaven. Of course, guys, it starts first by trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And again, man, I just want to talk to you this morning. You may be here because you are a, a worshiper, a lover of God, a, a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you're not. But the first step in being a man of faith is being a man who comes in faith to Jesus Christ for his eternal salvation. That's a man who recognizes that you're spiritually bankrupt and there's nothing you can do to earn a spot in God's heaven. But it's a man who understands that the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that God loved you so much, Jesus came into this world and he took your sin that was separating you from a holy God and he placed it upon himself. Jesus died in your place to pay for your sin. And he rose again on the third day triumphant. You see, the first step, men, in being a man of faith is to put your trust in the only way to get to heaven, that is believing in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Don't walk out of this room. Don't end the day without transferring your hope, your eternal trust, off of yourself and your goodness and come before him and in desperation say, it's you and I trust you alone. You paid for my sins. You rose again. I trust you and you alone. And, and men, that's when the life of faith begins. My dad was, um, had a rough time many times growing up. At two years old, he fell into an open well while my grandparents were homesteading out on the prairies of Wyoming. My grandfather was away. My grandmother was there. There was no way to get him out of that well. A little two-year-old crying down there, broken bones, and a, and a traveler happened to be coming by, a sheep herder, by the way, who was able to help pull him out. When he was 17, his appendix ruptured. Now, this would have been back in uh, like 1933. He almost died then. He goes off to World War II, uh, a traumatic time, a difficult time for men. He comes back, he lives in the shadow of his older brother, my uncle, who was uh, an educated man. He was older, he had gone off to college, he didn't go off to war, he went off and got his doctorate in history and was teaching at the University of Kansas, Kansas State. And so my dad comes home, he's a farmer. He's a farmer who really doesn't have a lot going for him. And just about every Saturday night, he ended up in jail, drinking, an alcoholic, nothing left in his life. And then he was introduced to Jesus Christ. His life changed dramatically. Most important thing in his life was meeting Jesus. Second most important thing after that was meeting my mom and marrying her. Third most important thing in his life that ever happened 
was my birth, but we won't go into that. <laughs> His life was changed because he was introduced to Jesus Christ. He was a man of faith. He wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Nor am I. And nor of any of you men in this room. Some of you have maybe made horrible mistakes. God does wonders. He takes broken lives. He makes them new. He puts them on solid footing. He can turn you into a man of faith. You see, again, what your families don't need is an empire builder. They need a man of God, a man of faith. And from this day forward, men, are there any changes you need to make? To walk humbly before your God. And as we do, we are called the friend of God. Not because of the great things we've accomplished. Not because of the squeaky clean life we've lived. But because we just believe God. We're living our life accordingly. A friend of God. Let's pray. And so, Father, grant us that ability. Give to us, Father, a, a desire and a heart to be men of faith, to not be empire builders, to not worry about all the things that the world wants to tell us we should worry about. Help us not to be base our identity on anything else other than our relationship with you. I pray, Father, that if we still have kids at home, that whatever needs to be changed, help us to be infectious men of faith. If our kids are gone and we have grandkids, help us to, to be men of faith. If we don't have any kids or grandkids, but we have nieces and nephews, we have neighborhood kids that desperately need a male figure, but not just a Nimrod man. They need an Abraham man. Father, help us to be men of faith for your glory. Oh, Father, that we could simply be called your friends. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.